Well, uh, good morning. We're so glad that you're with us today. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to the book of Esther and the Old Testament, book of Esther, chapter five today, as we continue our series called Culture Series. Last week, Ken did a great job of being able to articulate chapter four, a big time of essence message. And uh, today we're moving on in chapter five today. We'll conclude the book of Esther at the end of November, the last Sunday of November. We'll conclude it. We'll be looking into December uh, to a Christmas series. Looking forward to that. And I have to tell you, there's a lot of plans for next year. I can't wait to share with you. But just know Esther will continue through November 25th and we'll start uh, on December 2nd with a Christmas series. Hey, by the way, as you look in your uh, worship guide, there's one uh, section in that worship guide that talks about a special Thanksgiving offering for Six Stones Missions Network. And I want to encourage you to look at that, to pray about that. You can give and designate your giving all the way through the month of November, but on the 25th, we'll have kind of a, a, an ending uh, date to that and have hopefully a great day of giving to uh, Six Stones Missions Network. Now, I know that we're able to give directly to them, but this is a special time of transition in the life of Six Stones, and we want them to be strong financially and supported for the uh, next year's ministry that they're moving towards already. So be in prayer about that. Uh, we started that 10 years ago, and God has blessed that in so many different ways because of your generosity, more than $10 million uh, around the city and through government and business as well as churches have been poured into the community in the way of loving ministry that's gospel-centered, that meets people's lives uh, right where they are and meets their needs. So I'm thankful for that. Hope that you are too, and I, I'm going to ask you to just give a Thanksgiving offering uh, on November 25th or before that day. All right, please stand with me as we begin to read the book of Esther, chapter 1. Today we'll look at chapter 5, rather, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, first part of chapter 7, uh, because all of it has to deal with uh, one big theme that runs through these chapters, and it has to do with pride and humility. Now, I've titled the message today, that, uh, Provoking God's Wrath to Pride, or Provoking God's Favor or Grace through humility. Provoking God's wrath through pride. Provoking God's favor through humility. And we have a stark picture here of Haman filled with pride. And in contrast to that, you have Mordecai and Esther who walk in humility before the Lord. So we'll read chapter 5. Uh, first uh, verse is where we begin. Now, it came about on that third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, all these details help serve uh, to help us see this picture. No one was allowed to come before the king without his permission, without his invitation. Esther has been praying about an opportunity. For three days they've prayed, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And Esther knows the price tag that may be on her head if she walks in uninvited. She said, I'm going to do this, and if I perish, I perish. But now she's coming before the king, and you need to see how important this moment is. Verse 2, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. No small phrase. It's a huge deal. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what's troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even the half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Now, that's, that's a big favor right there. That's a huge portion of grace. Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I've prepared for him. 
The king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now they drank their wine at the banquet. And the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even the half of the kingdom it shall be done. Again, lots of favor. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare tomorrow for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. So her, her ask is, let's meet again tomorrow. I want to know if I have your favor. I'm going to ask a big question. Verse 9. Then Haman went out that day and was glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, and went to his own house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promised him above all the princes and the servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all this does not satisfy me Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then Zeresh's wife and all of his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman so that he had the gallows made. Long chapter, a lot of scenario. Pride versus humility. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to us today. Every one of us in this room, whether we feel deeply connected to Esther, Mordecai, and this book of Esther or not, help us to know the danger of pride and the joy of humility. Speak to us about where we are on that line. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Pride is a funny thing. And pride is also a scary thing. One of my favorite memories of my mom who passed away more than 20 years ago, is a time when I was 16 years of age and, and my parents had helped me buy an old car and this was my first opportunity to go out of town with the car. So I'm 16 years plus a few months and, uh, and we're sitting at the top of the driveway and my mom's about to say goodbye to me, giving me some last minute instructions and we lived kind of on a large lot and it had a driveway that curved. And at the curve was a very large tree, and that tree had been there at least 100 years. I'd climbed that tree all my boyhood years, and I knew the tree was there. And uh, yet my mom said, now, I want you to be careful when you go out of town. And I said, of course I will be. You know, I was a veteran driver, six months under my belt, right? So, of course, don't worry about that. And she said, and when you back down the driveway, remember there's a tree there. And I said, don't worry about me. I got in the car, put it in reverse, and back down that driveway, and somehow, somehow failed to see the curve, failed to maneuver well, and backed into that 100-year-old tree. And my memory is of my mom standing at the top of the driveway doing her best to stifle absolute laughter, laughing at me and my pride, and then how quickly I was brought low. Pride's a funny thing. It can hit you in a lot of different ways. But pride's also a scary thing. Pride's a scary thing in that if we're not aware of our pridefulness, it carries us away to a place we don't want to be. 
This is a, a story. This is a message. This is a chapter about a prideful woman, uh, a prideful man named Haman and a humble woman named Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai. And as we look at this picture today, I want you to be aware of the danger of pride. I want you to be aware that pride provokes God's wrath. Over and over, we'll hear this today. But at the same time, humility provokes his grace and his favor. I've got this line I want to begin with today that I think is an important line, and especially in light of the fact that, that Mordecai and Esther and Haman were all living in a Persian kingdom that did not acknowledge God well. And here's the line. The line is, if there is a God, life is best seen through God's perspectives. Now, you and I both know that there is a God. And so this line in no way doubts the existence of God, but it says to those who do not worship God, if there's a God, you better find out who he is. And if there's a God, life is best lived running to him and not away from him. And life is best lived looking at life through his perspective since he is God. Haman could have heeded this kind of advice. If there is a God, life is best lived, not through my perspective, but through God's perspective. And all through the message today, we'll hear that over and over again. As a matter of fact, when you move away from God and move away from his counsel, it always provokes God's wrath. You'll see over and over again, that's how life works. But when you run towards him, it always provokes his kindness. There's a New Testament verse that we repeat often. And here's what it is. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want you to say that with me. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You find that not only in James chapter four, but you also see that in 1 Peter chapter five, verse five, quoted exactly. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's a wise way to live with an awareness of what that really, really means. And when the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud, what it means is he arrays himself up against and he stifles every move. In fact, that word opposed is a military word. It means to to position oneself militarily in such a way where the prideful person will never make it forward. They will never really succeed in life. They will never move away because God is always opposing the proud. So life really is about being aware of what pride is and how to run from it in order to run to God. I was reading a great message that Charles Spurgeon wrote more than 100 years ago. And in this message, he talks about pride. This is just one paragraph. Listen to this message. Pride was the first sin to destroy the calm of eternity. It was the pride that, cost, that cast Lucifer from heaven. It was pride that cost our first parents their place in paradise. Pride is the first sin to enter a man's heart and the last one to leave. No sin is more offensive to God than the sin of pride. Pride has been referred to as the complete anti-God state of mind. It militates against God's authority, God's law, God's rule. That's why the Bible equates rebellion with witchcraft in the book of 1 Samuel. Pride assaults God's throne and asserts its independence in an attempt to dislodge God as the sovereign God of the universe. God and pride are like oil and water. They do not mix. Pride is dogmatic in its antagonism to God, and God is absolute in his opposition to pride. The creator has never and will never compromise with pride. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So where do we see this in the life of Haman and the life of Mordecai? 
in Esther. Let's take that first line for just a minute first. God is opposed to the proud. When you look at Haman's life, you'll see the pride points all the way through it. Let me name some of those. First of all, Haman is repulsively proud. Whenever I read about Haman and everything he does, his comings and goings, his words, his interaction with his family, his interaction with those around him, he repulses me. He is repulsively proud. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Haman went out. He was glad and pleased that he was invited to the, the banquet. At the same time, he was filled with anger against Mordecai. He's on this roller coaster. And it all has to do with how he is seen, how he's perceived, how he feels about himself. It's about his identity and, and how people respond to him because the center of his universe is him. In the movie he writes, in the book he writes, he is the central figure. And pride does that. It, it lets us see, it moves us to see everything through our own eyes and nothing through anyone else's eyes. So here comes Mordecai, or here comes uh, Haman, out of that audience with Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus. And he says, man, this is incredible. I've been invited to a banquet with just the queen and just the king. And then a few moments later, whoa, Mordecai won't bow to me. And now I'm angry and I'm miserable. And it was always about that with Haman. Am I winning? Am I losing? Am I loved? Am I hated? It's kind of the up down in his life. He doesn't know how to respond. Can you imagine this man's home life? Can you imagine him going home and everything is built around him and his perspective and what he wants in life? And so as a result of that, it is miserable all around. I use this term because I think it's important for us to see not only is God repulsed by the pride of Haman, but so are others. I think if most of us would be honest, we would say we have a basic distaste for prideful people, especially when it's us. I'm repulsed by pride, especially when I see it in my own life, and all of us have to deal with it in some way and die to self. But pride is just repulsive. You know, one of my, one of my pastimes, one of my activities that I sometimes do when I have a little spare time is watch YouTube videos that, um, that are kind of interesting. I like to watch videos of people that are too big for themselves and that fail in some way. I like to see people brought to the level they need to be. For example, boxers and fighters who are arrogant in the way they approach the fight, who mock the opponent and all of a sudden the opponent has a roundhouse and knocks them out in one punch. I like to watch videos of people that drive Maseratis and other powerful cars, but who don't know anything about driving those at all. And in just a moment, they lose all control and destroy half a million dollar cars. I enjoy watching people brought low. That's my vice, maybe, but that's what I do. I enjoy watching athletes on the football field who move from celebration to showboating somewhere later in the game, getting knocked flat. I like that. Because pride is repulsive. When someone does not see themselves from the proper perspective of who they really are in relation to others and in relation to God. Can you imagine the way God views prideful people? I mean, here's this big God, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing. And here is the proud person right here shaking his fist at God. Can you imagine from God's perspective how small, how tiny that man is that's shaking his fist at God? And yet that's exactly what Haman is doing. And that's why God is opposed to the proud because they have absolutely no perspective on reality. Pride carries us off and lets us think our view is the only view. And so as a result of that, we see the way God responds. God is always opposed to the proud. 
and he always, always humbles them at some point. Secondly, Haman is perpetually dissatisfied. Here's the line in chapter five, verse 13. I mean, this man's been elevated. He is over all 127 princes in a huge kingdom. He's number two to King Ahasuerus. He's been invited by the king and by Queen Esther to a banquet prepared just for him. He's excited and glad about that, but at the same time, he is miserable and he's not satisfied because one man will not bend the knee and this will literally eat Haman alive. His dissatisfaction with life and with status and identity will destroy him because of one man that won't bend the knee. Have you ever thought for a moment what Haman's life would be like if he just became humble for just a minute? If he just backed off a little bit on the me thing? Just backed off a little bit and said, you know, Haman's not bowing to me, but man, everybody else is. So, I mean, I'm not all that bad off, right? I mean, that's a pretty good situation in life, but his pride would not let even one person disagree with who he was. He's perpetually dissatisfied. Pride like that, it makes you dissatisfied with anything that doesn't go your way. And eventually his pride and dissatisfaction led to the downfall of many. He brought his whole family as well as many of his people to the place where he ended up. And he ended up in a bad place. Let me make this note that's very evident in the scripture. Everything he does has God's opposition fixed to it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in opposition to God. There are a lot of things I don't mind opposing. A lot of things I will go against. A lot of individuals I will refuse to agree with, but I never, ever want to be opposed to God. And I sure don't want God opposed to me. Pride invites God's wrath. Humility invites God's favor and his grace. And Haman is inviting God's opposition. And then lastly, I want you to notice about his life, he is obsessively irrational. This man begins to think in strange ways. He comes home in chapter five and tells his wife about Mordecai's refusal to bow. And in chapter five, verse 14, it says, his wife and all of his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high built. And then go and ask the king's permission and hang Mordecai on those gallows. Now, let me ask you to ask yourself, who does this kind of thing? 50 cubits is at least 80 feet. So here's a man that's being advised by his wife, who's probably sick of hearing his complaining, and his friends who probably are tired of him as well. He's repulsing everybody around him. And, well, Mordecai, if Mordecai is such a bad deal, if you hate him so bad, Haman, why don't you just build a gallows so high the whole city will see it and then hang him tomorrow. Now, I can't believe that this is normal activity in any culture. Nowhere I find in history's record or in commentary or in the Bible anybody doing something quite so irrational and yet this man's pride carries him off. Not only does he say, that's a great idea, he orders the command and gallows are built 80 feet tall, towering over the man's backyard. Well, I could tell you that my cul-de-sac would have a fit if I built any structure 80 foot tall in my backyard. And they would have all kinds of questions like, what is he doing? Has he lost his ever-loving mind? But this is what Mordecai did. He was irrational and he was obsessively so. He's completely out of touch with a crazy suggestion. He's literally about to hang himself. 
Let me say something about pride that's very evident in Haman's lie. Pride is irrational, it is unspiritual, and it is reckless. You can only trust a prideful person to do what elevates them, what pleases them. They're never a team player. They're never selfless. They never consider God or others. Haman is now provoking God's wrath. And he will see it. He will see it. God is opposed to the proud. And let me just say this to you today. Let the demonstration of God's opposition to pride be learned in your life through somebody else. Look at the prideful people that have fallen. Look at the prideful people in the Bible and learn the lesson. God will always be opposed to the proud because God's character is sovereign. He's Lord, he's master, and he will let no one control their own lives to that level. Learn from someone else. But look at the other side of the story for a minute. Because not only do we have this figure, Haman, but we also have Mordecai and Esther. They're the real heroes of the story. In fact, chapter five, chapter six, and the first two or three verses of chapter seven show us an amazing picture. And that picture is that God gives grace to the humble. In the same way that God's opposed to the proud, God in the same degree to the same level gives grace to the humble. And that's what's encouraging because in this room today, you can learn not to be a Haman and you can learn to be a Mordecai or an Esther. You can learn to turn away from the prideful way of one man and turn towards the humble way of the real heroes of the story. These heroes were waiting and trusting for God to come through at the right time, not willing to take things in their own hands, not willing to take control, not willing to take the wheel, but saying, God, we trust you. We wait for you. We look for you. In my study over the last week or so, I've uh, noticed for some reason my attention was directed to Psalm chapter 78. Those of you that are familiar with Psalm 78 know it's a psalm that often we quote about passing on to the next generation the stories of how great our God is. And really not only was it a psalm that dealt with the next generation, but it rehearsed to all the people the greatness of God. It was a psalm written 500 years before Esther's day. And by the time Esther was queen, that in places that had temple worship, this psalm was often sung. So the words of Psalm 78 were sung over and over to the people of Esther's day who were God-fearing Jews. They heard these names and these, these uh, great things that God has done. They heard the great lines of how God has delivered the people. And as a result of that, it was fixed in their mind that we can trust God, that God is able, and that we know he'll come through. I have summarized Psalm 78. It connected so strongly with me this week. It says he divided the sea so they could walk right through it. He made water stand up like walls. He led them with clouds by day and fire at night. He split the rocks in the desert so water flowed like streams. How can they not believe that he's able? He opened doors in heaven and rained down manna in abundance. He unleashed the winds and rained meat upon them through the birds. How can they not trust his provision? He unleashed compassion and forgiveness and withheld judgment. He led his people like sheep and guided them safely. He is able. He can be trusted. That's Psalm 78. And having heard those songs over and over, having known these words and the ways of God with his people, Esther and Mordecai were prepared to believe God. Every one of those scenarios in Psalm chapter 78 
are scenarios in which we could not pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps, but God had to come through for humble, waiting, trusting, praying people, which Esther and Mordecai were. If you remember chapter four, Esther said, after Mordecai said, who knows that you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. She said, please go and tell the people to fast for three days and I'll tell my handmaids to fast for three days and I'll fast for three days and then I'll stand up and go into the king's court and if I perish, I perish. But my trust is in the hand of the living God. That's humility. And that's where she was. Notice some things about humility. God remembers and rewards good things done in private. God remembers and rewards good things done in private because God sees all, God knows all, God's aware of everything that happens across the face of the earth and in every universe. Look in chapter six for just a moment. The Bible tells us while Esther and Mordecai were trusting and while they were waiting and while they were fasting and while they were praying, God would remember the things that they had done. The Bible says during the night the king could not sleep so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bichthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So in chapter two, verses 21 through 23, we see that Mordecai turned these two in and saved the king's life and Esther had reminded the king of it and he had recorded it in his chronicles. And now in chapter six, while they're waiting and trusting and praying and humbly aware that God was going to come through, the king was awakened in the middle of the night and the Bible says in verse three, the king said, what honor and dignity have been bestowed on Mordecai for this, for saving me. And then the king's servants who had attended him said, nothing has been done for him. I'm reading this text and I'm saying, what a coincidence that this king awakes in the middle of the night. Is that what I'm saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in the sovereignty of God, who shakes this king awake, and he causes him to want to read those chronicles. And so they unroll the scroll and they just happen to land on that particular place. Is that what I said? No, but by the divine hand of God, they opened up to that particular place. And all of a sudden the king realizes Mordecai has saved my life. Folks, let me tell you something. When you do good, something good in private, good in the quiet, God knows it, he sees it, and he never forgets it. Because he's a God that knows, he's a God that's aware. He's a God that's looking for people to trust. And so what happens in chapter six and verse four, so the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman, by coincidence, was sitting in the court, right? Wrong. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on those ridiculous 80 foot tall gallows which he had prepared for him. That's a paraphrase, I need you to know that. Doesn't say that, exactly. Verse five, the king's servant said to him, behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to him himself, who would the king desire to honor more than me? That's pride speaking. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let that be placed on that man, and let him be led around by someone proclaiming, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Wow, 
Tables are beginning to turn on Haman, aren't they? And all of a sudden, Haman, being moved by the mysterious hand of God, is just outside that palace when the king reads the Chronicles and calls for Haman to come in and says, who should I honor someone that I really want to honor for, for great things? What should we do? And Haman himself offers up the suggestion of parading Mordecai through the city. And Haman has the privilege of leading the man he hates the most through the city and honoring him. I love how someone who is arrogant is brought low. Amen. This ought to be a YouTube video, man. I'm telling you, it's great. Great stuff. What a fail. Let me tell you, every time you walk by pride, you will fail. And every time you puff yourself up, God will lower you and humble you. And every time you believe that you're everything, God will show you that you're nothing in his eyes. But here is Mordecai and Esther simply trusting and waiting and fasting and praying. And while they do those good things in private, God is doing amazing things in public that nobody could have put together. Let me just tell you this. When you're at home on your knees praying and trusting God and waiting for God, God sees it and he knows it and he will work in due time. When you're working and you're doing things you're supposed to be doing, even though nobody else sees that and nobody rewards you and nobody acknowledges all the work that you've done, God sees and God knows and God will acknowledge that in due time. Or maybe you're serving and nobody is thankful for your service. Or maybe you're parenting and your children are not grateful and they don't like what you're asking them to do, but you're doing the right thing. One day, God will see and God will acknowledge that. Or just, that, just being a neighbor, just being the kind of person you ought to be in your neighborhood or in the marketplace, wherever you are. Maybe you're just being honest with decisions that you make that will cost you greatly. And nobody knows that and nobody acknowledges that. But I want you to know today, just like Esther and just like Mordecai, we're trusting God. You can trust God who sees, who knows, and who will reward your humility. Know that, know that. God remembers and rewards good things done in private. I want you to know also that God places humble people in positions to bring change. Humble people are brought to the highest places in order for God to bring change. The verse 10 of chapter 6 says, The king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horses as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short of anything of all that you have said. Wow. I wish I could have seen Haman's face that day. <laughs> hey, man, go get Mordecai. Let's honor him. And there he has to do it. At the same time, Mordecai didn't expect this kind of elevation. I would imagine that this was uncomfortable even for Mordecai. He was trusting God, waiting for God, but to be placed on a horse, to be put, to be clothed with a robe, to be led around by the one that hates you the most, proclaiming that the king is honoring you. I don't think Haman had that in mind. But here's what's happening. God is lowering one man to elevate another man. And the tide begins to shift. And this is the platform that sets the stage for Esther to make her request in chapter 7. It says that the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. Uh, and what is your request? Even the half of the kingdom, it shall be done. So here is the request. Here is the opportunity. Esther is brought from a 14-year-old girl 
and over a four-year process becomes the queen, and now there she is, intervening for her people, trusting God, humble before God, along with Mordecai himself. God places humble people in positions to bring change. In fact, God only uses humble people to bring about change. Be a humble person. You know, when I walk through the, t- the scripture, I see this over and over. God brought Abraham out of retirement to form a great nation. God brought Moses from the backside of a desert to deliver his people. God pulled Elijah out of depression in order to minister and continue the prophetic line. God brought Joseph out of a prison in order to feed the entire nation of Israel. He brought Gideon out of fear in order to win great battles and have great victory. He brought Rahab out of a house of ill repute on a wall in order to show victory in the wilderness and on the other side into the promised land. He brought Abigail out of a bad marriage. He brought Jonah out of the body of a whale. He brought Esther out of fatherlessness and a little boy out of the crowd who had loaves and fish in order to feed a multitude. He brought a Samaritan woman from a dusty well. God uses people out of obscurity and who've been brought low to be placed in a position to change the world. But he doesn't use prideful people. He uses humble people to bring change. And finally, God proves his faithfulness to those who trust. You know, only the humble trust God. And the humble are given grace in time of need. You know how I can tell when I'm becoming a bit prideful and independent from God? I stop praying. I stop asking. I stop looking and seeking. I stop doing the things that God calls me to do as a servant, as a follower. I stop being a follower. I begin to try to lead my life myself. But when I step back, when I say, Lord, speak, when I step back and say, Lord, lead, when I step back and say, Lord, you're going to have to do this if it's going to be done. You're going to have to do it. Then I know I'm walking in the humility and the wisdom of those who trust. That's the humility of Esther in Esther chapter 4. Be reminded again of what she said in chapter 4 in verse 14, where she has been reminded by Mordecai, who knows whether you've attained royalty for such a time as this. If you don't step up, somebody else will. God doesn't have to have you. He doesn't have to use you, but he's inviting you. He will use somebody somewhere to step up on his behalf. That's chapter 4, verse 14. And then Esther's trust, chapter 4, verse 16, where she steps up and she says this. She said, I'm going to fast. I'm going to ask you to have people fast. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And this way, in this manner, I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm trusting the hand of the living God to keep me alive and to use me in whatever way he wants to use me. Humility, not pride. Trust, not self-will. God, in the same way that he's repulsed by proud people, is attracted to humble people who are looking for a God to trust. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone through whom he can be found faithful, someone who is waiting, someone who's watching for God to work. You know, there are times when I doubt 
And there are times that I worry. And there are times when I feel like things are shaky. I think we all do at some point in our life. Don't you sometimes feel like that? Don't you sometimes feel what's wrong? What's wrong? Why is God not blessing more? Why is God not working more powerfully around me? Why is he not honoring this or that? There are times I wonder about the future. There are times I wonder where God is. Like Esther must have been wondering up to those last few moments, where's God? Where's God? But when I get to that place, unless God said something different, I just stay the course. I stay the course. I keep marching in the direction God has given me. I keep obeying God and trusting Him. I keep praying for Him to speak to me. I keep looking for Him to work in ways that I can't work. Stay the course. Stay the course. Because in due time, God, who's able to work powerfully, can also speak clearly. And He can do whatever is necessary to bring us to the best place. So the best way to live life is to reject pride and embrace humility. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Let me just tell you, we're 2,500 years after Esther now. 500 years after Esther lived on planet Earth, Jesus came, revealed the Father fully. After that, the Word of God came together for us to have in our hands. So we have the Word made flesh, Jesus. We have the Word of God, our Bible, to give us far more than Esther had in walking by faith. You and I can walk by faith. We can reject pride and self-will. We can embrace humility. And we can see God work in just as great a way as Esther and Mordecai. Would you bow with me? And as you bow, would you stand with me? I know there are counselors that are going to come forward right now. And as they come forward, let me say a couple of things to you before I conclude this message. Number one is if you're a guest today, I would like to invite you to our guest reception room just outside the center exit doors across the hallway. I'll be there to talk with you. I'd love to meet you and just thank you for coming today. Maybe answer a few questions about our church and about the things that we're doing. So please see me there. But I would also say before we pray that this is also a decision time for spiritual decisions to be made. And listen, there's not a person in this room that hasn't struggled at some point in their life with pride. This is a good day, however, to put it down, to put it down. To die to self, to die to proud. To learn the lesson that Haman had to learn painfully, to learn it through Haman, to learn it through someone else. I had to say, God, where I have tried to walk in my own power, where I've tried to live life my own way, I'm gonna lay that down. I'm gonna start looking and listening to you, asking you to show me the way. It may be that you wanna come forward today and talk to somebody at the front that we're ready to pray for you, ready to talk to you. Let me encourage you. There is tremendous value in sharing what God is saying in your heart with somebody else. And of course, the most important decision of trust you can make is the decision of trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Because everything Esther needed, God provided in Jesus for you. And with one decision, placing your faith and trust in Him, He comes to live within your life and He comes to direct and guide you and give you wisdom for every day. The Holy Spirit will never leave you alone. You'll never, ever be alone again. He'll always be there. That's your number one decision. And every decision after that, 
is built on trusting him from that foundation. I want to encourage you to come today. Put your trust and faith in Christ and then continue to trust him in those ahead. As soon as my amen takes place, I invite you to walk forward. Others may be leaving today, but you take the opportunity to come forward. Reject pride. Embrace humility. Father, today in Jesus' name, I thank you so much that we can learn the lesson through a Haman instead of having to experience all that ourselves. Father, thank you that we can also learn through Mordecai and Esther how to trust you, how to believe in you. And Father, today I pray that you bring us all to the proper place, the place of truth and who we are, the place in being able to understand how we relate to you and others and help us to be moved off the center of the story and see that you're there as the only God, as the only center of the story. Father, help us in our time of need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.